Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. In November of 2016, the little town of Chapico, Brazil, drew the attention of the world. The town's soccer club was having its best season in history, on the way to the final of the South American Cup. The victory came on an improbable defensive stop, right at the mouth of the goal in the waiting minutes of the qualifying game. But the world grew to know Chapico not because of its success, but because of tragedy. Days after their victory, the plane carrying the team to its next match in Colombia crashed into the mountain just outside of Medellin, killing 71 people. Sam Borden spent months recreating the story of Chape's surprising run and how tragedy changed the lives of the team, their families, and their town. Stick around after the story for my conversation with Sam, where he tells us why the groundskeeper for the team became such a central character in the story. And here's Eternal Champions. Eternal Champions by Sam Borton. There is rain in Chiquinho's pockets, rain running down his shoulders, rain squishing through his shoes. The rain is so loud he barely hears the music. The rain is so thick he barely sees the coffins. Chiquinho tries to focus. He has a job. He is the groundskeeper. He takes care of the undersoil and the topsoil. He takes care of the field. This stadium is his home. The members of the club are his friends. One of the goalkeepers, Danilo, used to joke with Chiquinho about the bear patch down at the end of the field. All that mowing and feeding and watering in the warm Brazilian sun, and Chiquinho still couldn't get grass to grow there. Where's the grass? Danilo would ask with a sparkle in his eyes, and Chiquinho's leathery face would crinkle. One of the team's trainers, Anderson Paixão, used to talk with Chiquinho about the stray dog Chiquinho found lying outside the gates one morning a few years back. The dog was hurt and whimpering. A boy nearby said he thought it might have been hit by a car, and Chiquinho and his crew took it in. They gave the dog dried meat and bought it medicine. They rubbed its belly and cleaned its black fur. They got it a leash and built it a tiny house out near the shed with the rakes. They named it Pichico, which is Portuguese for something little. Before training, Paixão would pet Pichico and wrestle Pichico and kick soccer balls for Pichico, like a game of fetch, except Pachico would skip right past the balls because he was more interested in chasing the birds swooping low near the sidewalls. Pachico would nuzzle Paixão, and Paixão would giggle, and Chiquinho, watching from the side, would take pictures on his phone that he could look at during his long bus ride home every night around dusk. Chiquinho took pictures of the players before each game, too. But now Pachico is missing, and Paixão, Chiquinho's friend, is in a box coming toward him, and Danilo is in one too, and the water that has been running off Chiquinho's neck all day is suddenly rising through the grass on the field like a bathtub with the stopper dropped in. Big puddles are forming, and water is splashing everywhere, and Chiquinho, the groundskeeper, is scared. There are tens of thousands of people watching Brazilian servicemen carry in one coffin after another. The coffins are heavy. What if a soldier carrying Danilo or Paixão slips? What if a coffin gets covered in mud? Chiquinho cannot allow this. There are 50 coffins today. 50. And it is Chiquinho's field. He even laid out the floral wreaths and tied the bunting through the holes in the metal fences. He doesn't know anything about flowers or colors or bunting, but he wanted to make it nice. He wanted it to be respectful. He knows the coffins must stay dry. He has to fix the flooding. As the processional continues... He runs toward the end of the stadium. There must be a blockage, one of the drain pipes again. He bows his shoulders and slides into the concrete bunker under the stands where all the pipes snake together. It is quiet in there. Nothing is draining. Chiquinho bangs on a pipe, testing to see if he can hear which valve is stopped up. He bangs on another and another, twisting and whirling around to test as many as he can. He can't figure out which one is jammed. He slams the pipes with his hand. His cheeks are wet. He has no choice. Chiquinho takes a saw and begins hacking. He cuts through one pipe and a second and a third, destroying the drainage system. He cuts another pipe and another and another. His blade flails in all directions. Finally, Chiquinho cuts the right pipe. Gunky water gushes everywhere. His pants and shirt are sopping. Chiquinho stumbles out of the bunker and back onto the field. The pooling in the grass begins to ebb. He exhales. Then he straightens up and stands at attention, 
clutching the saw in his fist. He stares as the rest of the coffins are carried in. Everyone else in the arena watches, too. Some watch the military men. Some watch the widows or the mothers or the fathers who scream and hold each other through plastic ponchos. Some watch the children who fidget and fuss and might or might not understand exactly why an entire city in the interior of Brazil has come together at a soccer stadium to mourn in the rain. Chiquinho just watches all the feet. He cannot help it. He is praying no one slips. It is November 23, 2016, ten days earlier. It is hot and dry. The winds are calm. The sunlight glints off the stained glass of the Santo Antonio Cathedral that sits up high on one of the hills. The rain feels far away. As afternoon shades toward evening, the people of Chapaco crowd the streets wearing green and white. Vendors set up carts selling water and beer. Fans park their cars and lean against the open trunks. More than 800 miles southwest of Rio de Janeiro, this dusty city known for its slaughterhouses and its farmland is preparing for the most important soccer game in its history. Inside the stadium, Chiquinho waters the grass constantly in temperatures that rise toward 90 degrees. Down the street, at the Hotel Bertasso, the players of Chapecoense, which everyone just shortens to Chape, compose themselves. Before every home game, the players spend the night in this hotel together in concentration. They go over tactics and scouting. They talk about formations and strategy. Then, when they're done with all that, they pass time. The hotel gives the team the entire second floor and the players spread out. Danilo, the goalkeeper with the kind eyes, is chatty. Kempis, the striker with the frizzy afro, plays his pandero, which is a tiny drum. Tiaguinho, a young winger with a dimple, cannot put down his phone. The mood is buoyant. The game tonight is against San Lorenzo, a team from Argentina, and it is the second leg of a two-match semifinal in the Copa Sudamericana, the South American Cup. In the first match of the aggregate series in Buenos Aires, the teams tied 1-1. Tonight, all Chape needs to do is tie 0-0 because the tiebreaker in this tournament is goals scored in the opponent's stadium. If Chape advances, it will go to the final of one of the continent's most important tournaments. For a team from a city like Chapaco, a team that was founded in 1973 and was in the lowest division in Brazil as recently as 2009, it is fantasy. The players get ready to leave for the stadium, but Tiaguinho cannot stop texting his wife, Graziel. She is only 19, but they grew up in the same town and have been in love for years. Ever since the day Tiaguinho sat next to her on a bench in grade school and showed her his arm, he had written her name on it in marker over and over from elbow to wrist. He said, see how much I like you? And she laughed. A day earlier, not long after the players arrived at the hotel to begin concentration, Tiaguinho was sitting in the hall outside his room. Two teammates, Biteco and Mateus Caramello, approached him. We have a present for you, they told him, and Biteco gave him a gift bag. Tiaguinho took the bag and looked at them, wary. It is from a female fan who likes you, Biteco said, and Tiaguinho dropped the bag like it was on fire. He did not want his friends to see him interested in anyone but Graziel. Just open it, man, Mateus Caramello said, nudging it back, and Tiaguinho grudgingly pulled out a tiny box with a shiny ribbon and card. His eyes went wide. It was from Graziel. Tiaguinho furrowed his brow. He opened the card and read it slowly, tracing his finger over some of the words. Then he closed it, took a deep breath, and opened it again. Biteco leaned in, hovering over his friend that Tiaguinho shot up from the floor, shouting and dancing and hugging everyone around him. He showed them what was inside the box. Tiny shoes. And then he rocked an imaginary baby in his arms while his teammates howled. Since that moment, Tiaguinho has been floating. Even now, just hours before this match against San Lorenzo, he is texting Graziel about names. They both like Maite for a girl. It means beloved. For a boy, Tiaguinho pushes for Santiago, which is a family name. Finally, his teammates tell him it is time to go. He cannot resist and texts once more, telling Graziel that he loves her.
The game begins around seven. Arena Conda thrums. The fans chant and cheer and sing, standing together on the concrete bleachers or crowding up against the fence that separates the walkway from the team benches. In the press box, Chape's radio play-by-play announcer, Rafael Henzel, holds up his phone to take a video of the energy just before kickoff, even as he narrates the action live. Rafael is 43, with a flat face and thin hair and glasses. He works with several other announcers, including his partner, Renan Agnolin, but he is the team's voice. He has been coming to Chape games since he was a little boy. As a child, he would arrive at the arena with no money and wait outside the gates. Once everyone had gone in and the game started, he could find an entrance that was unattended and slip in for free. He cheered for the team when it was still playing in the amateur leagues. He became a broadcaster when he was 15. When Chape finally reached Brazil's top division in 2013, he cried in his radio booth. Tonight, with a place in the final at stake, Rafael is even more dynamic than usual. The Chape players know what they have to do. Just avoid conceding a goal. They do not need to score, and San Lorenzo's players are more talented anyway. They have three top players who played in England's top division. They have a regular for Argentina's national team. They have players who play for Uruguay and Paraguay. Chape has only the one away goal it scored in the first game that it wants to protect. After the first 15 minutes, the Chape players and the crowd grow more confident. Danilo dives to his left to push away a shot, and the fans erupt. Denaire, a midfielder, flicks the ball over his head to elude an opponent, and the spectators shout a mocking, oh, as the San Lorenzo players give chase. Chape occasionally presses forward in attack, and there is one sequence about half an hour into the game when Chape nearly scores. A free kick comes in, and William Diego, a stout central defender, lashes the ball into the goal. He turns away to celebrate, wanting desperately to share the emotion with his teammates on the bench. He does not see the offside flag raised. He then stops his celebratory gyrations mid-jiggle, shakes his head, and runs back up the field. Mostly, Chape just defends. A San Lorenzo player's header hits the post and bounces out. Danilo slides out quickly to block a shot. A long-range blast goes wide. The minutes creep by. 70, 80, 85, 88, 89. It is still 0-0. The fans are frothing, as it appears Chape will do it. The stadium is shaking. With seconds left, San Lorenzo gets a free kick and lost the ball towards Chape's goal. Even with all the defenders, it ricochets around and falls at the feet of Marcos Angeleri, an experienced Argentine. Angeleri is directly in front of the goal, 18 feet away. All he has to do is shoot the ball into the net, which is 24 feet wide, and San Lorenzo will steal the game, go to the final, and keep Chape home. Danilo, the goalkeeper, looks helpless. Rafael, in the radio booth, puts his hands to his head. He fears the worst. At the last breath... Chape will lose. But as Angeleri prepares to shoot, Danilo raises up like a lion on its back legs, and somehow, with his right foot splayed sideways, he blocks Angeleri's blast from close range. For a beat, it is as if the fans cannot fathom what has happened, but then the roar is long and loud, and Danilo thumps his chest with glee. Rafael, in his radio booth, calls out Danilo's name over and over except he changes it. Instead of saying, Danilo, he wails, Diusnilo, Diusnilo, Diusnilo. When the referee blows the whistle to end the game and officially sends Chape to the final, he bellows it once more, Diusnilo, Diusnilo, Diusnilo. In Portuguese, Dius is the word for God. The celebration begins in the hot and sticky locker room. The players form a circle and scream out the team song, the one the fans sing whenever something good happens, or something bad happens, or really anything happens. Oh, vamos, vamos, chape. Vamos, vamos, chape. Vamos, vamos, chape. They are delirious. Ananias, an attacking midfielder, jumps up and down on the seat in front of his cubby. Bruno Rangel, the team's leading scorer, is shirtless and claps his hands over his head. Sergio Manuel, one of the only players still wearing his full uniform, dances through the middle of it all. Fulman, the backup goalkeeper, bangs his hands against the frame of his locker. 
Even the mayor of Chapaco, Luciano Bulegon, holding a paper cup in his hand, shouts along. The party moves to Spetas, a restaurant in town where the team often goes. Paixao, the trainer, has a cavaquinho or a four-string guitar. William Diego has a surdo, which is a large Brazilian bass drum. Waiters circulate, cutting thick slices of sirloin from towering skewers. The players relive the match. There is a toast to Danilo for his miraculous save. The wives and girlfriends sit together and talk about how they have never seen their men like this. The women of Chape are close. The men are always playing or training or in concentration before they play again, so genuine friendships among the women are natural. When Graziel received the results of her pregnancy test, before she surprised Tiaguinho with the news, she went with Gaisa, who is Matias Caramello's wife, and Val, who is married to the defensive midfielder, Gil. They had not known each other long, but when the results came back positive, they hugged Graziel and congratulated her and told her she was so young to be having a baby. At Spetis, the women talk about the future, about the championship game, yes, but only a little bit. They talk about Graziel's baby and about a trip that many of the families are planning to take to the Dominican Republic after the season. They talk about bathing suits and how they will go to the beach together. They talk about relaxing. Aline Machado joins in, but cannot stop looking at her husband, Felipe. He has never been this happy, not when he was playing in Iran or the Middle East or for other clubs in Brazil, not even when he was making good money. He looks fulfilled, she says to one of her friends. Over the next few days, nothing changes. In the morning, Felipe leaves a love note for Aline on a napkin in the kitchen. When he begins packing for the trip to Sao Paulo, where Chape will play a Brazilian league game and then, from there, go to Medellin, Colombia, for the first leg of the Copa Sudamericana final. He puts their two-year-old daughter, Antonella, up on top of the suitcase as he wheels it around the apartment. Antonella squeals and grabs her father's arm. Felipe and Aline talk about the team and the winning and the trip to the Dominican Republic and about Antonella's love of the problem-solving dogs on the TV cartoon Paw Patrol. As Felipe is about to leave, Alina kisses him and tells him, Go now. Go and take this moment. At Tiaguinho and Graziel's apartment, Tiaguinho puts his bag down by the door and caresses Graziel's belly. At their wedding, she wore a sleek white gown with a floor-length veil and a headband with crystal butterflies on it and looked like a princess. Now, she tells him she hopes she will have strange cravings soon, like pickles or sausage, instead of just feeling sick. Right now, she only feels nauseous. He hugs her and talks to the baby, telling that he is going to teach it how to play soccer and take it onto the field with him before a big game someday. Tiaguinho nuzzles Graziel's stomach before he walks out the door and says, Love, take care of our little baby. Alan Rochelle, a left-back for Chape, has a more frenetic departure. A misplaced passport leaves him and his wife, Marina, scrambling, and Marina is worried it is some sort of sign, a harbinger about her husband's chance to play well in an important final. But the passport is found, and Alan can leave, and Marina feels an exaggerated sensation of comfort and calm come over her when she is in the shower the next morning. It is unusual for her. She likes energy and pace. She was in beauty pageants when she was younger and sometimes wears a nose ring and highlights her hair, lighter or darker, depending on her particular mood. She is working on designing her own clothing line and likes walking the couple's dog who has an affinity for chewing everything from shoes to furniture. Marina is not used to serenity. She tells Alan about this feeling, and he chuckles at her. What do you think it means, he asks, and she hesitates. She cannot place the sensation. She only knows it makes her feel warm. I think something very good is going to happen to you, she says finally. I think maybe you are going to score a goal. The flight to Medellin takes off at 6.18 p.m. local time. It is delayed slightly because one of the players asks, just as the doors are closing, whether he can get his bag back from the luggage hold. He left his video game player inside. Many jokes are made, but the bag is retrieved. It is retrieved because this is a charter flight operated by La Mia Airlines and not a regular commercial flight. La Mia is a Bolivian company that has flown many other soccer clubs to important games. Just a few weeks ago, on the same plane, it flew Lionel Messi 
and the Argentine national team to a World Cup qualifier. A Bolivian airline cannot legally operate a flight from Brazil to Colombia, so the Chape traveling party takes a commercial flight from Sao Paulo, where it plays that Brazilian league game, to Santa Cruz de la Sierra, a Bolivian town. La Mia will then take the team from there to Medellin for the first match of the Copa Sudamericana final against Atlético Nacional. While waiting for the flight, Alan Rochelle does magic tricks. He correctly guesses which card a teammate picks from the deck and makes a card disappear right in front of everyone's eyes. Danilo tries some tricks too, but he is better as a member of the audience because he gets visibly startled when Alan suddenly makes the card appear again. Everyone is giddy. A Bolivian television crew does interviews before departure, and one of the flight crew members says to the camera, I think we'll return with good results. Kempes, the striker, gestures to the crew member and grins, saying, everything is fine because he is in charge. The team used La Mia for a trip earlier in the Copa Sudamericana, and Caio Jr., the head coach, tells the interviewer that traveling via Bolivia gives us good luck. Once in the air, the players deal cards and play samba. One of the staff members tries to teach a flight attendant Portuguese. Caio Jr. sits up front with most of the coaches. Kempis sits on the right side by a window. Two rows from the back, Rafael Hensel sits in a middle seat among the other journalists. Allen sits next to Fulman, the backup goalkeeper in the center of the plane. Allen was originally in the rear, but moved up when the journalists gathered there. Fulman grabbed him and pulled him into his row. The flight is long. Some players eat. Some doze. Some keep their headphones on the entire time. At about 9.30 p.m. local time, the plane begins its descent. A different aircraft, flying from Bogota to San Andres, has just been diverted to Medellin because of a mechanical issue, so Chape's flight is directed into a holding pattern. At 9.49 p.m., the pilot on Chape's flight requests priority to land from the air traffic controller. In the cabin, Rafael asks a flight attendant when they will be on the ground. Ten minutes. Ten minutes, he is told. He notices the flight attendant looks worried. At 9.52 p.m., the air traffic controller tells the pilot there is another plane also holding just below them and asks whether they can wait a few more minutes for clearance. At 9.53 p.m., one of the four engines on the British-made Avro RJ-85 plane fails. Thirteen seconds later, the second engine fails. At 9.55 p.m., the third engine fails. Fourteen seconds after that, the fourth engine fails. The lights in the cabin go out, and the air circulator goes quiet. There is no turbulence or shaking. It feels instead as if the plane is floating toward the ground. Using the standard phonetic alphabet, to refer to La Mia's call letters of LMI, the pilot shouts into his radio at the female air traffic controller. Senorita, Lima, Mike, India, 2933 is in total failure. About 30 seconds later, the pilot calls again. Lima, Mike, India, vectors, vectors, senorita, vectors to the runway. He is asking for directions. The controller answers that the plane has disappeared from her radar. She tries to guide the pilot toward the runway anyway and asks for the plane's altitude. The pilot shouts, 9,000 feet, senorita! Vectors! Vectors! The controller tells the pilot how far the plane is from the runway. There is a pause. Then the controller hears the word, Jesus, over the radio. She asks again for the pilot to call his altitude, and the radio is silent. At 9.59 p.m. local time on November 28th, the Chape flight, traveling at about 150 miles per hour, crashes into Cerro Gordo, a mountain with an elevation of 8,500 feet. On impact, the plane shears into two pieces. The tail embeds on the south side of the crest. The nose shoots over the edge and finishes on the north side nearly 500 feet away. One of the engines catches in the branches of an uprooted tree. There is no explosion, no fire at the site, only twisted metal and debris. The temperature at Cerro Gordo is 66 degrees. There are cloudy skies and thunder in the distance. It is, by most measures, an unremarkable night in Colombia. 
After traveling four hours and roughly 1,800 miles, Chape's plane plunges to the ground just 11 miles from the runway at Jose Maria Cordoba International Airport outside Medellin. Aline Machado is sleeping, but it is the sleep of a parent with a toddler nearby. When the phone rings in the early morning, she answers it immediately. It is her mother. At first, Alina does not understand what her mother is saying. Then she hears the words, airplane, and chape. Her head starts pounding. She sits up in bed and turns on the television. There are confusing reports about something happening. She feels sick. She calls Antonella's nanny to come over so she won't be alone. The text message group of Chape wives and girlfriends buzzes on her phone over and over. No one knows what is going on. No one knows what to believe. One woman says that someone from Colombia has messaged her on Facebook, but that she is not sure if it is reliable. The man says there are no fatalities. There is hope. The television and radio voices keep talking, but not saying anything for certain. Then the reports begin mentioning some survivors, and the phone buzzes more. Alina believes... Felipe is alive. She believes she can feel him. She has known Felipe since they were children. On their first date, he took her to see pigs. Some of her friends thought it was strange, but she understood. The pigs were at a farm his family owned on the outskirts of Gravatai, near Porto Alegre, where he lived. Felipe imagined that someday he would turn the farm into a soccer field for the community. He would build the locker rooms himself. He would put up goals, and children would come and play. He would run camps and clinics. It would be his to share. So on that first date, when they were just teenagers, Felipe was showing Alina his dream. She felt his passion, his ambition that day. She felt his enthusiasm. And now, in the middle of the night, she still feels it. When the TV says a defender is among the survivors, she is sure it is Felipe. She is sure of it. When the TV says it is Neto, she is happy because it means one of Felipe's friends survived, too. She goes to Rosangela's house. Rosangela is married to Kleber Santana, the captain of the team. Felipe and Kleber Santana are close. When Kleber Santana was substituted late in the game against Sao Paulo, Felipe took the captain's armband and finished the game as the team's leader. Aline is going to pick up Rosangela, and the two of them will go to the stadium together to wait for more news with the other wives. When Alina comes into Rosangela's living room, the TV is on. Rosangela is sitting there. Alina looks at her and then looks at the TV and hears the reporter say, there are no more survivors. She stares at the TV for a beat, or two, or three. Then Alina wails and collapses to the ground. After 20 minutes, Alina and Rosangela collect themselves and go to the stadium. They sit in the locker room with wives and girlfriends and mothers and fathers. Everyone connected to the club has come to the stadium because no one knows where else to go. Even Chiquinho is there. Graziel is hysterical. Someone says, be strong, Grazi, for the baby. A locker room attendant begins to gather the players' clothing, putting things in bags. In one corner is Marina. She feels torn. Jacqueline, Val, Susanna... Alina, Rosangela, they are all crying. Marina is crying too, but her husband, Alan Rochelle, is alive. The team doctor took Marina aside and told her Alan was in surgery at a hospital in Colombia. She does not know the details of the surgery, but she knows Alan is alive. She tries to comfort her friends, to hold them and hug them, but they know her husband is not dead like theirs. They know she is not a widow and already. It is different. When the man collecting clothes from the lockers comes around to Alan's, Marina stops him. He seems confused. She looks around and tries to whisper, No, she says under her breath, No, don't take these. Raphael Hensel does not know what happened. He does not know where he is exactly. But he sees lights moving and hears strange voices and tries to call out, I'm here, he shouts. I'm here. He calls out for his radio colleague, his friend. Renan? 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 Renan Agnolin, his partner, 
was sitting next to him on the plane. But Raphael cannot see him anymore. He calls Renan's name again and again, but there is no answer. Slowly, Raphael begins to realize there are trees around him. Then he sees faces. There are five or six men. There is a woman. They are talking to him and pulling at his clothes. He yells at them, Don't rip my shirt! Don't cut my trousers! He is worried he will lose the only change of clothes he has in Colombia. They tell him he's going to be okay, that they're going to help him. One keeps shouting, Don't go to sleep, Rafa! Don't go to sleep! Rafael does not know he was in the back piece of the plane, the one that plugged in the soft earth on the near side of the mountain. He does not know that the elevation and the fog and the mud made it impossible for helicopters to land at the crash site and that it took hours before rescue workers could arrive. He does not know that he will be extracted from the site in the back of a pickup truck because ambulances cannot get to him. Once he reaches the hospital, he has a vague understanding of what has happened but knows no specifics. He knows the plane crashed, but the doctors do not tell him how many people are dead. He does not know that Alan Rochelle kept asking the doctors, where are my friends, as he was wheeled into surgery. He does not know that Fulman, the backup goalkeeper, will have his leg amputated from the knee down, or that one physician will describe Neto to a television station as currently alive, because he does not want to be presumptuous. Rafael does not know that Danilo survived the crash and was rescued, only to die at the hospital. A day later, Rafael's wife arrives and traces her finger over his face, where a tree branch or a piece of shrapnel has gouged a wound above his right eye. He has a swollen abdomen from his seven broken ribs and a tube down his throat and is sedated. She looks at him and says, I came to get you, and his eyes grow moist. She wants him to focus on himself, on his own recovery, so she and the doctors tell him the story in stages. Three days after the crash, Raphael learns that there are only a few survivors. No one tells him about exactly how the plane went down. No one tells him that there are so many coffins in the San Vicente funeral home in Medellin that they have to be kept in the parking garage because there's no room inside. No one tells him that two days of school have been canceled in Chapaco and that residents are holding vigils all day at the stadium and that children have written cards and drawn pictures that are piling up outside the gates. No one tells him the city is in mourning. On Saturday, five days after the crash, Raphael finally looks at the list, finally reads all the names. That morning, three C-130 Hercules aircraft from the Brazilian Air Force arrive in Chapaco with the bodies. The coffins are loaded onto several open-sided box trucks, a dozen or more in each, and driven from the airport to the stadium. Shrouded in white and wrapped in plastic because of the rain, the coffins are carried in by the soldiers. Chiquinho and his men have set out the flowers and the bunting. They have also left only one set of goalposts on the field, the one Danilo was guarding when he made the save against San Lorenzo that sent Chape to the final. Danilo's wife places a picture of Danilo in the goal mouth. The godfather of Danilo's son pounds the crossbar with Danilo's gloves. Under the tent, Danilo's mother hugs Felipe's father and whispers, Why did he have to make that save in the last minute? The president of Brazil is there. The FIFA president is there. Nearly 100,000 people, or about half the population of the whole city, are inside the Arinoconda or directly outside. There is coverage of the memorial all over the world. There were 77 people on the plane. 22 were Chapacoense players, and three survived. 23 more were coaches or team staff, and there were two team guests. There were 21 journalists, including Rafael, and there was the flight crew, all of whom perished, except for one flight attendant and a maintenance technician. Of the 71 who died, there were 64 Brazilians, five Bolivians, one Venezuelan, and one Paraguayan. Fifty coffins come to the wake in Chapaco. The rest are flown elsewhere for separate services. In the hospital, Rafael does not watch any of the memorial on television. He does not see the stadium's exterior wrapped in a giant black ribbon. He does not listen to the speeches 
where the mayor likens the rain to God's tears. He can't bear any of it. It is too fresh. Instead, he just looks at the list, reading the names of his friends over and over. Aline Machado is not at the memorial. She goes to the airport to see Felipe's coffin come off the military plane, but she does not go to the stadium. She does not want to be around people from Chape, does not want to talk about how the club must be forza, forza, or strong in the face of tragedy. Alina does not want to be strong. She's angry. She has so many questions, so many things that do not make sense to her. Two stand out. Why did a Brazilian team hire a Bolivian airline to take it to Colombia? And what was the pilot thinking? Felipe's father, Osmar, is mad too. Felipe died on Osmar's birthday, and Osmar cannot stop reading news reports about La Mia and the pilot. Within days, he reads that La Mia was a twice-failed Venezuelan airline whose name was sold to Bolivian investors and relaunched in 2015. He learns it had only three planes and that just one was operational. He learns the pilot, Miguel Caroga, was in trouble with the Bolivian Air Force for leaving his military service early with no explanation. And he learns that Miguel Quiroga was also one of the owners of La Mia. This infuriates him. He tells Alina, the pilot is a murderer, as he hears more and more on television and the radio. Most crashes involve a massive fire because the fuel explodes, but investigators say all the La Mia fuel gauges found in the wreckage were below zero, so there was no fire no explosion. The official flight plan Kiroga filed is scrutinized, and investigators believe that Kiroga might have underreported the weight of the flight. Also, the maximum flying time before fuel ran out, 4 hours, 22 minutes, was listed as the exact same amount of time as the expected trip time, with no safety buffer for things such as circling the arrival airport to let another plane land in front. Why did the plane crash? Osmar cringes when he says it. It ran out of gas. The club makes statements about how La Mia had flown other soccer teams in South America and was reputable. There was only a day or two in between winning the semifinal and leaving for the trip, it says, so the time to make decisions about the travel plans was short. The team had flown with La Mia earlier in the tournament and had been satisfied. It liked the way La Mia put Chape's logo on the plane and on the headrests of the seats. Using a charter airline was more efficient as well, the club says, because it meant the team could leave right after the game and get back sooner than if it had to wait for a commercial flight the next day. It does not add up for Osmar Olina, and Osmar seethes as he reads about a few other La Mia employees being questioned by Bolivian police. An investigation into the flight controller is underway too. There is no official word from La Mia yet, but to Osmar, it feels so simple. It was about money. Chape flew with La Mia, he tells his family, because it was a little bit cheaper than chartering with Goal or another Brazilian commercial airline. And Quiroga did not stop to refuel when he should have, Osmar says, because it would have taken money out of his own pocket. Quiroga tried to push it to save a little, and so Felipe is dead. Aline talks to a lawyer. There are discussions about lawsuits, about legal action. There are meetings. Some other wives and family members are interested, but many just want to move on, to try to figure out how to put their lives back together without their husband or son or brother. Aline wants to move on too, but every time she leaves the room, Antonella tenses up. Every time she goes to the store, Antonella cries nervously. At the Paw Patrol birthday party, Alina will be alone. And at Felipe's farm, the locker room isn't finished, and the grass needs cutting, and the field still needs lines. Every time Alina goes there, to let Antonella run around, or to simply look out over the countryside, she feels as if she is looking at a story that ends in the middle of a sentence. That is why Alina cannot just move on, and so she keeps talking to the lawyer, keeps asking questions, even though there are no answers. Whenever she tries to ask anyone at the club about what happened, she is told that all the directors at Chape who made the decision to use La Mia 
were on the plane. She's told that all the directors who made the decision are dead. Fifty-four days after the crash, Raphael Hensel walks back into his radio booth. It is January 21st, and he is wearing a light shirt and hat with a green lanyard holding his credential around his neck. His seven broken ribs are still healing, but his lungs are strong. Before he puts on his headset, he sits in his seat and pauses. He thinks of Renan Agnolin, who is next to him on the plane. There is a game today. It is a preseason match, Chape against Palmeiras, the reigning national champions at Arena Conda. The stadium is full. Chiquinho has spent hours on the field, determined to make it a palace. It feels strange, a new team, a new time. But Chiquinho wants to make it nice, even if he doesn't know these players. Pichico, the dog, is missing and hasn't been seen since the tragedy, and Chiquinho wonders whether it is because the dog does not recognize the new players either. Before the match, there is a ceremony. Alan Ruchel and Neto and Fulman come out onto the field. Neto has a scar on the back of his head, his hair shaved away in a patch. Fulman is in a wheelchair, his right stump wrapped in beige dressing. He wears a black neck brace. Alan puts one hand on the back of Fulman's chair and walks gingerly, still stiff and sore after spinal surgery. The fans sing and wave paper origami flowers with the club's crest on it. The surviving players join members of their teammates' families in the middle of the field. Atletico Nacional conceded the Copa Sudamericana final to Chape, so the Chape players are now campeones eternos, eternal champions. Winners' medals are draped over the necks of widows and children. Many of the wives wear their husband's jersey backward so that the name is on the front. From his chair, Fulman lifts the trophy through tears. When Barbara, the wife of Ananias, receives his medal, she cries out and raises her hands and points with two fingers to the sky. The new players walk out of the tunnel and onto the field. Chape's board has been reconstituted and a new president has been elected. A new coach, Wagner Mancini, has been recruited. A new front office is in place and in six weeks, the team has been rebuilt. Twenty-five players signed, coaches brought in, and support staff hired. Some teams lend players to Chape to help. Some players who played for the team earlier in their careers feel a pull to return. Tulio de Melo, a renowned forward, had played briefly for Chape in 2015 and is supposed to play for a team in Qatar in 2017. The salary is big, and the destination intriguing. Then he received a message from his friend Neto while Neto was still in the hospital after the crash. It said, The club needs you, and Tulio de Melo came to Chape instead. The game begins. The fans behind the goal brandish their flags as usual. It feels good to cheer. Palmera scores the first goal, but then Chape bends in a free kick, and the ball is knotted across the goal mouth, and Douglas Groley, a player who grew up in Chape's youth academy, and has come back to help it rebuild, nudges it over the line. There is a whoosh of energy, as if the whole stadium has welled up together. Some fans scream, others cry. Many in the stands are wearing tiny earpieces, so they can hear Raphael describe what is happening right in front of them. In his booth, Raphael's eyes go wide, and he bellows, Goal! My heart overflows! My heart overflows, he shouts. Chapecoense, the team of our heart, is reborn with a goal from its past. Raziel takes the baby pants out of the drawer. There are tiny blue jeans, pastel slacks, and striped shorts. She folds them, organizing them in different stacks. Then she puts them back in the drawer and takes out the baby shoes to evaluate. She does this every day. It is her therapy. She likes to organize the baby clothes and the baby shoes while she feels the baby kick. She likes to be in the baby's room, where there are giraffes on the wall, and a soccer ball in the mobile, and pictures of Tiaguinho beside the diaper-changing pad. She likes to make a mess 
so that she has to tidy up again. Her therapist tells her it is okay. It is okay for her to have a photo of Tiaguinho on the wall above her bed so she can feel him watching her sleep. It is okay for her to have a collage of their pictures covering the wall near the baby's room so she can feel like she is not alone. It is okay for her to believe her husband is going to be reborn as her son. At the body scan ultrasound, she sees the baby's features and is relieved. She tells her mother, the baby has his eyes. The baby will be born in July. Tiaguinho hoped it would be born on July 22nd because that was his father's birthday. And now Graziel hopes it will be then too. She has also decided that the baby's name will be Tiago. It was so obvious. In January, her friends and family had a gender reveal party for her. And when she cut the cake and saw that the inside was blue, everyone shouted out, Tiago, and threw confetti. She cried. She wants to take a picture of Tiaguinho with her to the delivery room. She wants her husband to be there too. Graziel does not love soccer. She follows Chape a little, but she lives in Bomjardim now, her hometown about three hours northeast from Rio. She does not stay in close touch with the other Chape wives. She has her parents and Tiaguinho's parents nearby. She has Tiago in her belly. She has her pictures. She has voice messages from Tiaguinho on her phone that she listens to under the covers. Aline Machado leaves Chapaco too. Aline is in Gravatai with Antonella. She plays Paw Patrol with Antonella. And when Antonella asks about Felipe, she tells her that Felipe is in heaven. Aline says that he is with Nina's daddy and Julia's daddy, so that Antonella doesn't feel as if she is the only one. Sometimes at night before bed, Antonella looks out the window and points to a star and says, Look at Daddy. Alina's life and Graziel's life go on without Chape. So do Rosangela's and Val's and so many others. They move away because of the crash. They have to. Others stay. Chiquinho still takes care of the undersoil and the topsoil, still keeps an eye on the drainage system when it rains. After a few weeks, he and his men put away the blankets, throw away the dog food, and take down the tiny house out near the shed with the rakes. Their dog, Pachico, is missing, and Chiquinho understands. But every evening around dusk, as he rides the bus home from work, Chiquinho looks out the window anyway, craning his neck in the hope he might catch one more glimpse of Pachico, running and playing and chasing the birds that swoop low. Fulman stays too. His neck brace is off, and he has a German prosthesis and already walks easily on it, so he doesn't need a wheelchair. He goes on a Brazilian television morning show and shows off his singing voice. He laughs, just as he did before the crash, and says he is eyeing a career as a Paralympian. He jokes it should be no problem, because his iron leg never gets tired. Alan Ruchel and Neto stay as well. They rehab and train, sweating through extra work on the side during practices. They watch the new players revel in the crowds at Arena Conda, energized by the chants and the songs and the ritual in the 71st minute of every game when the fans shout, Vamos, vamos, chape! Vamos, vamos, chape! Over and over, in homage to the 71 people who died in the crash. They watch the team win or tie 20 of its first 24 games, and they work harder. Marina is nervous about Alan's spine, but she goes to the games with him and watches and chants in the 71st minute too because she knows he is unbowed. Team trainers think he might be ready to play by the middle of summer. Raphael Hensel has told Alan and Neto that he cannot wait to call their names on the radio again. Inside the team, the coaches make a decision. They do not talk about the tragedy anymore. They did for a month or so, but then they decide the locker room needs to look forward. We need to write our own history, the new coach tells the new players, even if it is with some of the old pieces. And so, next week, before the game against Gremio, Chape will still do concentration at Hotel Bertasso. The coaches will still talk about strategy and tactics. The players will still sit in the hall on the second floor, playing music and texting 
and filling the time until the bus leaves for the short ride to the arena. And then, as kickoff approaches, they will still run out to play on the same field of those who came before them, the field that Chiquinho prepares by seeding and mowing and watering that bear patch down at the end. And that was Eternal Champions, written by Sam Borden. Sam's with us in studio today to talk about the piece. Thank you for being here, Sam. Uh, my pleasure. So tell me a little bit about the reporting on this. How long were you working on it? Uh, and obviously there was so much recreation involved in this, so many scenes that obviously you couldn't have been there for. What was the process you went through for recreating those? Well, it was uh, it was an interesting process for me. Um we spent almost two weeks in Brazil meeting, uh, you know, victims, uh, family members of the victims, um, the survivors of the crash, people connected with the club. And I think a couple of things from a journalistic perspective were unusual. One was that there was so much coverage of this crash in South America, in Europe, almost everywhere except, you know, North America and the United States, right. that there was video of you know, the memorial at the stadium. Um, you know, there was team video inside the locker room when they're chanting in celebration after the win over San Lorenzo. So there was like lots of material that I think had not necessarily been seen by, you know, by me or by people in, you know, the U.S. or sort of the North American audience that was readily available. There was the um, early report from the aviation authority about the crash itself that could give detail about the plane and what had happened, the timing of the radio communications. So in terms of the recreation, that was one piece. And then the other piece is that there was, there seems to be a very strong culture in uh, Brazil, or at least uh, amongst um, soccer players in Brazil of social media and, you know, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. And so there were just loads and loads of videos, you know, the, when the players uh, surprised Tiaguinho and told him, uh, she gave him the package from Graziel that showed that she was pregnant and he right. was going to be a father. There was a tremendous video showing every step of of that happening, you know. Wow. And so that kind of material is a you know gold for a reporter. So when I I had that and I had people that were around those scenes that I could ask to watch those videos with me and talk about what they knew or what they had heard from the people in those scenes, it made the recreation really vivid and really strong. And that's kind of what led me to create the piece in this way, almost as like a short story, as opposed to sort of a traditional, you know, journalism article. Right. And, and in that same vein, and you say talking about it as a short story versus a traditional article, how did you decide to sort of focus on the members of the team, their families, instead of doing something that was about uh, about the town itself. I mean, that's obviously a whole other tangent that you could go into because that sense of loss, that mourning on that side and that kind of scale is pretty huge. So what made you want to focus in specifically on the characters and, and the team? You know, my, my approach always in journalism and, in, you know, whatever the story has been to take the big things and try to make them as small as possible. I feel like that's what readers connect with. And maybe that's just my own sort of personal bias and what, you know, the way that I read things. But to me, the the most compelling part of this situation, I mean, obviously the whole city was affected. I mean, you know, it's not that big a, a city, but the, the intimate stories of, you know, a father, uh, a brother, a son, all of a sudden having, you know, their life stopped so suddenly. To me, I just felt like that was what would resonate most universally. You know, I think there is some universal fascination with plane crashes, you know, and most of us have been on a plane at some point and have certainly thought about the possibility of the plane going down. And I think that brings, you know, a reader to a story just like, oh, a plane crash, what happened? But then to, to carry beyond that sort of basic drama, the thing that resonates most with me and I felt like would resonate most with readers was as intimate as I could possibly get what happened when these lives were all of a sudden stopped right when nobody expected them, you know, to have that happen. Well, in constructing the story, you don't start at the crash. You start uh, with the with the sort of memorial service and then build up to it. What made you want to direct the story in that way leading up to the actual moment of the crash? You know, 
it's tricky. I mean, I I started a version of the story closer to the crash, and I was sort of playing with that for a little while, and it just I, I felt like it was just a crash. There was no connection to the people on the plane at that point. And so I felt like the way that I needed to come into the story was to have the reader connect with a few people that were connected to the crash. Obviously, Shaquino, the groundskeeper, to me was sort of a, a placeholder for the town, the team that had wasn't on the plane, you know, like had to figure out how to do his job and get back to doing whatever it is that he was responsible for while dealing with this, you know, incredible grief and this remarkable, you know, and unusual situation of the place where the games are all of a sudden is hosting a funeral for 50 coffins on the field. So I kind of felt like that was the way to bring in the city. And then from there, you got to know the players and the wives and, you know, find out about the guy who's going to be a father and find out about the guy who's going to be at his daughter's Paw Patrol birthday party. You know, like it just felt to me like before I could bring the readers to the plane, I had to make them feel like they were invested in the people who were on the plane. Right. And now there's one, it seems like there's one part of this, which is, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but it's sort of, obviously this is a tragedy, but there was something that one of the people said in this, uh, which was that essentially if they had lost, would they still be alive? Was that something that you encountered from people? Because that's, you know, that seems like such a real interesting and kind of horrible question because they enjoyed this great success, this last minute stop. They were on the way to, you know, what looked like even more success. And had they not won, would all this, would they all still be alive? Was that something that you encountered? A little bit. I mean, the 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 way, what you just said is 100% right. And sort of, to me, the cruel twist of the entire thing is that they were on this plane thinking they were about to go to make history for the reason that any athlete wants to make history, to win this championship in this most unexpected and dramatic way. And instead, they made history for being part of one of the worst disasters in sports history, showing yeah. the biggest disaster in Brazilian sports history. So, you know, that that twist, I think, is sort of a, a layer that I felt and I think the people connected to the team feel, you know, as, as a, a horrible twist of fate. So the question about, like, you know, the if he hadn't made that save, would it all have never happened? The one thing that I really was struck by and I tried to reflect as best I could in the story was that my impression is the people of that club and the people of that city in general are very connected to God. You know, I mean, even Rafael Henzel, when he made the broadcaster, you know, when he likens Danilo to, to God, you know, Dios Nilo, Dios Nilo, you know, using the word for God. And so while they have thought of, Hey, if he hadn't made the save, maybe we, you know, we wouldn't have been on that plane. Yeah. The thing that I encountered more often than not was, you know, this is God's plan. We understand this was God's plan. We thought God's plan was for us to become, you know, this great story for winning. And as it turns out, it's this great story, you know, this story, this remarkable story of trying to be reborn and come back after such a terrible tragedy. Right. The other part of this is that, you know, there could be some investigative elements to this piece. You know, for me in reading it, it felt like there were times when, oh, is this going to turn into investigation into how the plane went down that's a that's a that's a turn we see in stories like this sometimes and it looks like that's something that you kind of looked into but that if maybe there wasn't as much there tell, tell me a little bit about reporting that out and how that fits into this narrative sure sure i mean you know for for if i can for a moment of cross promotion within espn uh, <laughs> you know this is a piece that's also that i worked uh, on for e60 as mm-hmm. well and is going to be on um e60 um, it's, I think it'll be, you know, almost the whole show, uh, on Sunday and that component, we go a little more deeply into, we spoke to the, one of the surviving flight attendants, uh, excuse me, we spoke to the woman who was the, um, aviation official that questioned the flight plan, um, and said, Hey, this doesn't make sense. You know, the maximum range of the plane is exactly the same as the, you know, amount of fuel you have on board, but was overruled by the pilot. And so we get into sort of the nitty gritty of, the investigative side of it. I think that our thought in the written piece was that, you know, it is almost two stories, you know, and in a television piece, you can have commercial breaks. You can sort of divide it up a little more concretely. 
here my hope is that the narrative flows somewhat smoothly and that you feel invested in the people and sort of the small nature of what happened to this particular group of people and that, you know, that story is brought to some kind of a conclusion. You're right. I mean, there are there's a lawsuit that's still ongoing. There is an investigation and a report by the Colombian Aviation um, Federation that's supposed to be released at some point this summer. Um, there are criminal proceedings and an investigation against, you know, family members connected to Miguel Caroga, who was the pilot. You know, there is no doubt that the end of that part of the story is a long way down the road. Right. Um, but for the purposes of this narrative, it just again, I wrote pieces of that initially. And I think we decided that in the end, let's make it about the people and tell you the story of of the people. And for them, as it is right now, those questions are unanswered. And so it felt right to leave them unanswered in the story. So you said you spent about two weeks down there for the reporting um, and and spent even more time on the, obviously digging through other aspects of the story. Was there anything in, in that that just didn't fit into the piece, anything that you know you either fell in love with that you wanted to get into this, something that just didn't fit with with what you were writing? Uh, that's just, you know, this is something that obviously happens a lot when you do reporting and especially when you get into the writing process. Right. You know, what was on the, the cutting room floor for you in this? You know, the one story that I wish that we had been able to do something with, uh, and it actually ended up on the cutting room floor, both in the written piece and in the E60 piece, unfortunately, um, was there was um, a, a woman who works for the club, uh, works for Chat Bay, whose husband was the official team photographer and he was on the plane and he died in the plane crash. And she really thought about like leaving Shepako and moving away. And like, it was just, you know, they were too close to the club. And as it turned out, she instead decided to embrace photography became, you know, like sort of, quickly learned how to be a sports photographer and ended up taking the job that her husband had. And so oh, like wow. when we were there, she was shooting pictures of the games and was doing the exact job that he had done for the team for so many years. And it was like, you know, she, she was so close to just like letting this crash change her life completely. Like not even just losing her husband, but taking her children and moving away and just starting over somewhere else. And instead she stepped directly into the hole that was left and, you know, made it her own. Um, and I was just so struck by the thought process that had to go into that and, you know, what it must be like for her to like literally be, you know, in the same camera positions that he was every game and taking the pictures and, you know, looking at the photos that he did after every match and it just, you know, we talked to her briefly and she was kind of on the fence about doing like a official interview and yeah. we ended up not pushing it. But her story was really remarkable and I I would have liked to have found a way to have used it a little more visibly in either one of the pieces, but unfortunately it didn't make it. But there were like two or three other things similar to that where, you know, we ended up going with Alan and Marina and Felipe and um, Alina as sort of like the main thrust of, you know, the, the team and then Graziel and Tiaguinho is sort of the, you know, what could have been, you know, we were about to be a, a family you were about right, to be a father right. and it just, you know, didn't fit. But I think about her often whenever I see highlights of, you know, Chape playing, I'm always thinking like, Oh, she's probably down there taking pictures. Yeah. So in closing out the piece coming to the end, as you said, there are so many different, there's so many parts of this story. There's so many threads that you could follow uh, ending it where you did, you know, with the team trying to find its own closure, with all the various members of the of the of the families trying to find closure. Um, how did you sort of land on what the ending of this piece should be? It was it was very tricky. I know, you know, some writers um, will say that like, oh, they wrote the ending first, and then they just kind of worked to that, and you know, it was very easy. I mean. That was not my experience in this particular piece. <laughs> yeah. I think those people are lying. Yeah, I, you know, maybe, you know, I, I don't know. That was not my experience with this piece at all. I had an idea sort of early on that I liked Chiquinho. Um, it's funny, right before we went down to do the reporting, Jimmy Breslin died. And, you know, he's famous for the writing about JFK's oh, yeah. Gravedigger. And I've always been sort of struck by, like, that and the, the way that kind of device resonates. Um, I always 
have appreciated that. Um, and so I liked Chiquinho in some way as like a bookend because I felt like he was on the periphery. I mean, you know, he wasn't on the plane. He wasn't a player. You know, he's a staff member at the club. But like he felt real. I mean, he had to make that funeral on his field. And like that's that was a big responsibility, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing to deal with. And so I liked him and I liked the the dog, you know, disappearing and maybe not recognizing the new players and not wanting to come back. And I sort of wanted to circle back to that. And so I had this idea of maybe ending it with Chiquinho looking out the window, looking for Pachico, but that didn't really feel right. So I tried that a few different ways. And ultimately I just, I felt like it started with the field with the coffins on the field, you know, and it ought to end on the field with players on the field. And to me, you know, I, I tried that a few different ways and ultimately settled on sort of what's on the page. But it just felt to me like it wasn't the kind of story that ought to be a incredibly sad ending. Like I didn't want to end with, you know, I don't know, um, like Graziel, you know, crying, looking at pictures of, you know, of, of Tiaguinho and she together. But I also didn't want it to be like a happy like, oh, they're, you know, running out to, to play a game and, you know, they're winning and all that kind of stuff. It just felt like it needed to be something in the middle, just like, you know, life goes on in this town that right. you've never heard of except for this plane crash. And I kind of felt like Chiquinho and doing the job and just trying to get that one patch that he just can't get grass to grow on. It, it felt like just the right size as the way to step out of the piece. And uh, hopefully readers like it, you know, I, I don't know. But um, that was sort of my thinking. All right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, again, I'd like to thank Sam for coming through to give us a glimpse inside the creation of Eternal Champions. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash double truck. That's all one word. We'll be back soon with more stories. I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening.